Hey, I'm Gina from Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Jennifer from Bethel Park, PA. Hey, I'm Alex from Rochester, New York. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Thank you. I'm Jesse Thorne. I've done a lot of interviews, and only one time did I ever ask for an autograph afterwards. It was from Bill Withers. Before you head out the door, <laughs> yeah. I've never asked a, a guest on my show for his autograph, but I brought a record. Would you, would you mind signing it for me? I absolutely will. Well, I'm glad to be the first. Thank you. <laughs> it's Bullseye. Coming up, a rare interview with the soul legend Bill Withers. Withers retired from the music industry in the mid-1980s and, with a very few exceptions, stayed out of the public eye for more than 20 years. In our extended conversation, we'll talk about his upbringing in West Virginia and why he enlisted in the Navy. The coal mines held no particular fascination for me. <laughs> and why he ultimately retired from the music industry. This is a business, and you got some coal pimps that will mail you out until you're dying your grave. Plus, we'll talk rock and roll. Brad Delinsky will look back at an album that kicked off a whole new era of rock in the 70s. Then Pitchfork and Grantland writer Ian Cohen will bring in a couple of his all-time favorite heavy records. Later, Davey Rothbart from Found Magazine will offer up a couple of his best finds. And lastly, I'll tell you about the news radio scene that makes me laugh every single time I watch it. Spoiler alert, it's all Phil Hartman's fault. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You've heard Bill Withers' songs. Come on. Ain't No Sunshine, Lean On Me, Harlem, Lovely Day, Use Me, Just the Two of Us. It's an amazing list. His songs come from a deep personal space where joy, longing, and even sadness can all be found. That's partly why Bill Withers' music has made such a mark on the ears of those who listen to it. But it can be easy to forget the man behind the heavy-hearted voice. Bill Withers pretty much retired from music about 25 years ago. And he's hardly made a public appearance since. I was lucky enough to speak to him in 2009. Of all the interviews I've done, this one stands out as an all-time favorite. Let's take a listen to one of Bill Withers' hits, Use Me. An honor to have you on the show. Thank you for uh, thank you for doing it. Well, thank you. No problem. You, you grew up in um, uh, in West Virginia uh, in a sort of coal mining region, and, and your dad was a coal miner. And I wonder if it was the sort of the sort of place where 
you were either a coal miner or you were leaving town, you know, when you were yeah, 19? Yeah. Yeah, when you grew up, you you made that choice, you know. I made the choice to go in the Navy. The coal mines held no particular fascination for me. <laughs> <laughs> Was it, were, there, were there people for whom they held fascination? Some people, not a lot of people from my generation, uh, or the people that I knew went into coal mines, because you saw what it did to your father, you know. I mean, uh, there was the black lung disease. There was just just the whole look and feel of it. And if you think you have other choices, you know, if I gave you two choices, okay, take this shovel and uh, dig a hole in the ground and go down in it or go do something else. (laughs) I'd probably take something else. Yeah. Seems like at least even money. Yeah. Yeah. Did you did you think about different ways? <laughs> did you think about different ways to get out of town, or or was the navy just the first thing that came along? Well, some people moved to cities, you know, and they, um, you know, like New York and you know Dayton, Ohio, anywhere, you know, it was dangerous. It it's a dangerous place. You know, it's the only place that I've ever been. I went back down in there later in life just to see what it was. It's the only place that's both wet and dusty. The two don't go together. No, sir. It's wet and dusty and, you know, you're under the ground. You know, at the same time, the Navy isn't exactly uh, the promise of a danger-free life. No, but, uh, you know, I got a chance to go to aircraft mechanic school. I had, you know, I worked on airplanes. Uh, I wasn't flying in them. I don't know what could happen to me. I mean, you know, I could drop a wrench on my foot or something or walk into a propeller. But, you know, (laughs) I learned quickly how to avoid that, you know. You know, my my dad was in the Navy just just after you left, and— uh, a friend of his was killed by a rope on the deck of an air ca- aircraft carrier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those cables can break and they whip around and they can cut you in half. Or if you're not careful, you could become too comfortable and walk into a propeller or get sucked up into a jet engine. That That's life. You can, you can drink too much and uh, get excited about your new Porsche and go out on the Pacific Coast Highway and, and kill yourself. So there's a lot of ways to die. What we try to do is to lessen the probability of that event. Yeah, that's fair. I I read an interview in which you said that that music really wasn't part of your life when you were in the service. Is that is that true? Yeah, no, no, it wasn't. You know, were you were you thinking about it? Where would you do it? What are you going to do? You're going to go play in one of those navy bands and go. Let the it's record state sen- that you indicated falling it's asleep. It's not very sensual, you know. <laughs> but you could, uh, but you know, there there might be room for uh, for a guitar or a ukulele or or, or something like that. Yeah, was if it, was you it have something that, that talent, you, were- you know? But I didn't have that kind of, uh, you know, I couldn't play a guitar or ukulele. And it's smaller than a guitar. Sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to suggest that you were a ukulele really get player. get funky on the ukulele. <laughs> I'm surprised James Brown didn't have one in his band. You know. <laughs> ukulele, hit me. One, yeah. two. But, 
But I did see a guy from Hawaii. Jimmy Buffett had a guy in his band for a while who could who made it a very interesting. He's like a virtuoso. I forget his name. But he is something, you know, so people can turn anything. What were your best memories of that time? What was the best part about that first, you know, eight, nine years of your adult life? Being in the Navy? Well, there was a certain validation uh, for me. At that time, uh, if you were black, um, you know, you you expect to be a steward or something. You know, the guys that serve the officers, you know, like you, you see in the movies and stuff. So there was a chance to prove yourself that you could uh, that you could do do technical things. I remember arriving in Pensacola, Florida when I was 18 years old and having to overcome the perception that you weren't smart enough to be an aircraft mechanic. I mean, what kind of genius does it take to change some spark plugs or something? So the noble pursuit of trying to change perceptions, you see? When you got out of the Navy, you... um held a sort of a variety of, of regular guy-type jobs, the kind of jobs that people hold when they get out of the service for a while. Um, when did it occur to you to become a musician? I knew from, you know, you you don't... When you have a talent like that, you know you have it when you're five years old. It's just getting to it. You know, it's getting around to it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to a true soul legend, Bill Withers. We spoke in 2009. Let's hear a little bit of his classic song, Harlem, from his first record, Just As I Am. It was released when Bill was in his early 30s. You were about 30 when you made your first demos, right? Yeah, somewhere around, you know. Uh, I, I mean, probably older than that, you know. Most people get over the hump thanks to the kind of heedless optimism of being a 19-year-old or or whatever. You know, they, they know they have this thing inside them, and, and the thing that gets them to get over the scary bits is just that they're, you know, they just don't care because they're a teenager, um, whereas you took that step when you were when you were a grown man, and that's why you're sitting here talking to me because I ain't most people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay. How, how, how many most people do you g- go to the trouble 
I'm talking to. I'm giving you a hard time. But that's true. You see, I've been most people. I spent my uh, some part of my life as most people, into my 30s as most people. Once I transitioned out of that most people category and did something, you know, whatever it was, you know, then a different set of rules apply. You, you watch football games? Sure. Okay, you figure on Sunday maybe there's 20, 40 million guys watching football games. A thousand of them think they could, or maybe 10,000 of them think that if they got the chance, they could play quarterback. Three of them probably could. So I was one of those guys that was, you know, living around, and I saw these, uh, you know, I think I could do that. Um, It's like becoming a Playboy centerfold. I have run into people who have expressed a desire to be in Playboy who it's unfortunate because they just ain't that cute, you know what I mean? So <laughs> so in in the process, in this big funnel, you got all these people. And it's hard to do, you know, to get into a business like this. First of all, you got to have the talent and then you got to figure out the terrain, you know, what's the path to it? I'm from Slab Fork, West Virginia, so I managed to figure this out, and you know, through some luck and some and some conniving or whatever. The question you get asked most often is, "How'd you get started?" You know, if if I knew how to write the book on how to get into show business, I wouldn't have time to talk to you. I'd be too busy working on my book because I could sell a lot of books. Was there a point when you felt like you had made it through that funnel and that you were achieving this thing that you had kind of convinced yourself that you were capable of achieving? Was it when you made your first record, had your first show? You know one of the funniest analogies I've ever heard? This guy was talking about uh, he had a blind friend, and he became very angry with the blind friend. And he says, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to kick his... And the guy says, you can't do that. He's blind. He says, oh, he'll know because I'm going to tell him who's kicking his. (laughs) So when when that happens, you know it. You know, they let you know. It's not like you could have a hit record and you don't know about it. You know, you need some epiphany for somebody to tell you, hey, man, you've broken through. You know what I mean? It's like. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Bill Withers, who's been retired from the music industry for more than two decades. We spoke in 2009. He's behind huge soul hits like Lean On Me, Just the Two of Us, and Ain't No Sunshine. In fact, let's take a listen to Ain't No Sunshine now. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. It's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And she's always gone too long Anytime she goes away Wonder this time where she's gone Wonder if she's gone to stay Sunshine 
first record was a was a big hit and it was a tiny record like it was a record that i i read you made it in nine hours of recording time you mean the album or the, the first the first album yeah but the first album had a, a couple of huge hit singles on it and you know so it's this tiny thing that really worked out the way that you would hope that it would work out yeah and i wonder how did the how did the actual experience of having a hit record being a famous musician compare to your idea of what it would be like there's a gratitude. Oh, man, finally something that I thought I could do worked out. Because there was a lot of stuff that you thought you could do that didn't happen, you know. You know, when when you, you didn't make the football team or uh, the girl you thought was flirting with you, you know, really had something in her eye. Or... Um, you know, uh, coming from where I come from, you know, when you're a kid, you think you can jump across this creek and you miscalculate and then you got to go home and change, you know, because you got mud and water all over you. So, you know, there's that thing. Then a lot of things change socially, you know what I mean? I mean, there's a business reality to it. You find out that there's some pretty, you know, there's some pretty, pretty mean people in this business. After a break, more with Bill Withers. He'll talk about why he wound up retiring from the music industry. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Cameron Esposito, the host of Wham Bam Pow. This is an action and sci-fi movie podcast on MaximumFun.org. We talk about punching. We talk about car chases. We talk about uh, arms, muscles that are on arms. And every week I'm joined by panelist Rhea Butcher. That's me. And, of course, also Ricky Carmona. Oh, I'm all up in it. That's what's up. The Afro spokesman. We are going to give you all of the jokes and all of the happiness and all of the information that you need to watch action sci-fi films to the fullest. Mm. Find it at MaximumFun.org, or you can subscribe on iTunes. Hey, gang. You can subscribe to the Bullseye Podcast at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bill Withers. We spoke in 2009. Let's take a listen to the song, Lovely Day. When I wake up in the morning, love And the sunlight hurts my eyes And something without warmth I know it's gonna be 
impossible to fake When someone else instead of me Always seems to know the way Then I look at you And the world's all right with me Just one look at you And I know it's gone It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the soul legend Bill Withers. We spoke in 2009. It was right around the time a concert film called Soul Power was released. It featured Withers, James Brown, Celia Cruz, and a bunch of others performing at a music festival in Zaire in 1974. Have you seen the, have you seen the movie yet? Yeah. I, I watched it on Friday. And w- one of the things that I was really amazed by in and watching you in the movie is that, you know, the first the first 25% or third of the movie is you and all these amazing musicians, you know, getting on an airplane and, and heading to Zaire to do yeah. this concert. Yeah. It's you and, and the Spinners and Celia Cruz and the Fania All-Stars and, you know, they're, uh, they're like playing claves on the airplane and, mm. you know, it's, it's really amazing. And, and of course, uh, James Brown and Muhammad Ali and Don King and all these people are on their way over there. No, they were already, Muhammad Ali, they were there. Well, they're, you're not so, on the same, not on yeah, the same airplane, yeah, but everybody's, yeah. it's sort of like this process of everybody going over there and, and everybody has this, uh, everybody has a really different tone to this on this trip. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, um, and there's like, you know, James Brown is, James Brown by that point had, had spent the last 15 years being, you know, one of America's greatest entertainers mm-hmm. and, and approached the whole thing like, now I'm the world's greatest entertainer. And, um, and you're, you're very quiet in, in the footage and you're almost like, look like you're just taking it in. And I wonder what it was, what it was like for you to be in this kind of crazy gaggle of brilliant performers going and doing something, you know, 10,000 miles from where you lived, what it felt like to be? Well, people have different approaches, you see. I think you approach things according to your personality. And uh, uh, James Brown's personality is different from mine. James Brown... (laughs) To say the least. James Brown's delivery was dancing and you know and 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 it's fascinating i mean it was totally interesting mine was sitting on a stool with an acoustic guitar you know so that in itself would dictate the differences in the approach and the behavior so that's that's just not my personality you know what i mean there's a scene where your eating looks like maybe lunch uh, and you're sitting between um, Muhammad Ali and Don King, <laughs> and yeah. I was I, like, it was it was the most amazing thing to see. And and all I could think is what it must be like uh, to be you sitting in between. I'll I'll use a word that we'll have to bleep on the radio, but basically history's two greatest talkers. Um, yeah, <laughs> and just kind of taking it all in. So I wonder what was it like to be to be there with these with these guys who are just the amazing champions of bravado and be you know still Bill. It's entertaining, you know. It's entertaining. 
because you know p- people pay a lot of money to see them and you get them for free <laughs> you get them in the rawest form and it's just you know it's just hanging out i i happened to be sitting there eating and everybody came and 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 joined me at the table it was fun you know hey man you know you here you got all these characters and personalities and stuff you can't ask for any more than that you know Maybe the lateness of the hour makes me seem It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Bill Withers, who's been retired from the music industry for more than two decades. We spoke in 2009. You are basically full-on retired from music um, 20-some years ago. Why do you think you were so done with it when you were done with it? I'm not done with it, you know. Let me tell you something. You know... Um, but I would think that, you know, you know we, if you wanted to do it. We all live inside ourselves, right? If you got people asking you over and over again, why are you doing this and why are you doing that, you know, most people don't have to go through that. You just go. So people ask you, why are you doing it, where are you going? You just tell them something, you know, to tell them you chew you on that for a while. But, I mean, I've, I've written stuff. Uh, I had fun writing stuff, Jimmy Buffett stuff. Uh, George Benson has a new record coming out that I wrote the song. Uh, you know that there's stuff to do, but uh, maybe I may have. I have another option. I'm a songwriter. You know, when I had some kids, I didn't want to be in Philadelphia, and my kids are here. So there's this cookie cutter perception that somebody makes up, and you're supposed to fit into it. I don't have to do that. I have choices, you know. I can take my own approach. Do you enjoy the performance part of it? Like, I mean, if you were if you were talking about doing a, you know, a show once a month in Los Angeles or something like that, is that something that you think you would you would still get a kick out of? Probably, but it's not a practical thing to do. You know, this stuff there's a business reality that it costs money to put people together. To put people together to play one show. It's not profitable. It's not a good business. 
Plus, if you have the option, you know, I'm a songwriter. I mean, I don't need any equipment. I can do it out of my head. I can write it on a piece of napkin or tissue paper or toilet paper, you know, for that matter. You know, people used to say to you, well, you shouldn't worry about it. You know, let me handle this, and you just go do what I tell you. In whose world? In whose world? You know, I I, I used to have a little poem in my mind. You know, uh, the manager's son goes to Yale, and the blues man's son goes to jail. See? The one thing that kept me away out of this music for for a long you asked me why I started late. You know, my father was this coal miner, but he was always interested in reading, never got a chance to go to school, but he read and he, you know, uh, uh, dignity was very important to him. The first thing that I had to resolve in my life and the one thing that that was very important to me and I had to sort this out can I go into this thing and avoid the minstrelness of it this is a business and you got some cold pimps that will mail you out until you die in your grave you got as many thieves in this stuff as, as so. So there's a life you have to run. And you do the best you can. And hopefully, as a human being, you improve. I'm 70 years old. I mean, I'm not some kind of mindless troubadour. You know, I have an intellect I have to manage. I have some thoughts I have to manage. I have a life I have to maintain. I want to know where my stuff is, you know. I want to know who I am. I don't want to be some simple-minded blues boy. You can bleep this out. Kiss my with that So I'm doing the best I can to grow and improve my lineage as a species. So I got some responsibilities that require that I be available. You know, I, I, I never had the benefit of formal education. And I've always wanted to better myself. I can speak the language. I can write it, make it rhyme for you if you want to. You know what I mean? And somebody said, education is the sum total of what you know. That's everything from tying your shoe to whether you can do quadratic equations or not. So I'm not, I'm not saying this should be a template for everybody, but that's just the kind of person that makes sense for me to be. Hopefully the music that I made, you know, is useful to somebody. I mean, I get letters from people, that nice letters that people say, hey, man, my grandmother died and your song helped me. I like that kind of stuff, you know. As a result, it was important to me. As best I could to try to wind up with a life that had some stability and some dignity in it. You know, it's like people approach you as if to say, well, 
well, well, my God, Hugh, how come you are not? I'm 70 years old. I made some choices earlier than that. That I wanted to be a complete person. Not just this entertainer thing, you know. It doesn't fill up my plate. I love it. Who wouldn't like it, you know? It doesn't fill up my plate. It's it's such an honor to have you to share this time with us. Thank you so much for Thank you, for man. And I really appreciate it. And uh, who knows, tomorrow, you know, you might see my name. Well, I'll tell you, know, you what, uh, if you if you get if you get on the on bill somewhere, you got my 50 on bucks from walls. <laughs> All over the place. I got to say, my interest in, in you do some, doing some shows in L.A. is, is uh, just because I've worn out the grooves on... Uh, uh, no, I'm flattered. <laughs> I, I'm flattered. I appreciate that, you know. I'm flattered. I appreciate it, you know. I'll do the best I can. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Withers. Thank you. Bill Withers. We spoke in 2009. You can hear Withers' music, well, you know, pretty much anywhere that sells music. Let's go out with one of Bill's all-time greats, Lean On Me. Pitchfork and Grantland writer Ian Cohen talks about a couple of his all-time favorite heavy rock records. Davey Rothbart from Found Magazine brings in a couple of his best finds, and I tell you about the news radio scene that makes me laugh every single time I watch it. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. My name is Graham Clark. My name is Dave Shumka. I'm the other guy who hosts Stop Podcasting Yourself. And I'm the other guy that hosts Stop Podcasting Yourself. We are from Canada, so we don't know many of your ways. But what we do know is quality podcasting. And whale blubber. Yeah. There's 50 different words for podcast in our language. We would say all 50 of them, but why don't you just listen to our show and you'll get you'll get the gist of what we're about. We bring a guest on, we talk about their lives, we talk about our lives, we talk about things they've over heard it's a great time and you know what you're not going to regret it stop podcasting yourself available from maximumfun.org or on itunes brr that's what we say in canada when we're cold it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne we like to get recommendations for the best stuff in popular culture on bullseye and this week we're joined by our friend ian cohen who Often recommends heavy music for us. Hey, Ian, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Yourself? I'm doing okay. Let's talk about some all-time favorites of yours, um, starting with an artist named Deaf Heaven. Um, tell me a little bit about Deaf Heaven. Well, um, it's great that we're talking about all-time favorites because this one just came out this year, and I think it's an absolute landmark that will stand the test of time. Like I'm that confident in it. Um, it's it's a, an extreme metal album called Sunbather, and the album cover is entirely pink. <laughs> and, um, you know, which is which isn't unprecedented. I mean, if you go back to 2006, like Boris, uh, the Japanese metal band, they had an album called Pink with a pink cover. Let's listen to Dreamhouse from Death Heaven's record, Sunbather. Sunbather. 
It's a very romantic tune, Ian. <laughs> you know, it's it's been kind of a landmark in terms of like a metal album that's crossed over to what I would consider like you know indie uh, listeners. As far as I know, it's like the most critically acclaimed record of the year, um, at least according to like uh, Metacritic or whatever. So you know, it, it's definitely something that people will talk about, and it'll be divisive in a good way for you know years to come. Let's talk about your next pick, an album called The Seer mm. by a band called Swans. Um, this is from last year. Yeah. And we're going to hear a little bit of a track that is the, um, you know, it's the titular track of the record. <laughs> it's also um, a 30-minute track that we are going to uh, excerpt to less than 30 seconds. <laughs> about swans swans got their start uh in the 70s in new york that you know during like what was called like the no wave and like noise rock that was going on in new york at the time you know with these howling like unprecedented like jet engine guitars like nothing sounded like that at the 70s but you know as they went along became like a real influence bands like sonic youth and any other sort of extreme act but they went on hiatus for a very long time and came back in uh, 2010 by the way they are like the most physically demanding visceral ass-kicking live band you'll see period these guys are all in like their 50s or 60s but the cool thing is it really helps out the visual because they're the most grizzled looking like they look like they just stepped out of like an american like interloper on some bangkok pie gal game or like you know the deer (laughs) hunter or whatever you know, that sort of darkness or that sort of apocalyptic conjuring is like usually seen as like something that college kids or whatever are into. Well, Ian Cohen recommends Swan's album The Seer. Uh, that's on Young God Records, as well as Deaf Heaven's album Sunbather on Death Wish Records. Ian Cohen, of course, our heavy music critic. He, you can find his writing online at Pitchfork. And Grantland, Ian, always a pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure as well. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. From time to time on the program, we are joined by our friend Davey Rothbart, the point guard of Found Magazine, Found Superstar, now the author of a book called My Heart is an Idiot. Davey, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Jesse. It's great to have you here. So, Davey, let's talk about where these finds that we're about to uh, delve into come from. These are pieces of paper found on the ground, found on the street on the floors of city buses and bowling alley parking lots, prison yards, sent to us from all around the country by finders. So I have a few brand new ones to share with you and some all-time favorites. Oh, fantastic. Well, let's get right into it. All right, so this one was found on the streets of Brooklyn, New York. My friend picked this up. It's written to a guy named Delane. And it says, Dear Delane, you and I are just friends. That's the way I wish to remain. I like you, but only as a friend. I would be happy if this doesn't affect our bond as friends. Please understand, it's not because you're not handsome enough. It's just because you and I are friends and that's it. The reason you can't be my boyfriend is because I'm not as attracted to you as you are to me 
To be honest, I just want us to be friends. That's all. It's your choice whether you want to be my friend or not. Signed, Julia. P.S. Let's just be friends. <laughs> so the woman that found this says she's, she wonders if Delane ever got the subtle hint that Julia just wanted to be friends. I like that, that she dropped in that P.S. <laughs> exactly. You know, just, you know, they just want to add a little wrinkle Make to it. Make it absolutely clear. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so many of the finds that we get revolve around love and relationships. So I've got a few like that. And this one came from Portland, Oregon. It seems like it's a, a guy who's counseling his friend who's in the early, early stages of a relationship. He's just trying to give him some advice. So he says, don't rush things. Be her friend first. Take her out for lunch. Ask her, would you like to go out for lunch? My treat. Please. Come on, please. So I like how he's <laughs> anticipating rejection for his friend before he's even really had a chance. Yeah, but I mean, he is encouraging him in that context, in the context of why, the rejection. Why, why, does he, why, yeah, why does he think he's going to have to beg for it? Davey, can we address the fact that these notes, which have been found on the street and then photocopied, are you carrying the same literal photocopy from town to town? Because it looks like you are holding a hundred-year-old book, this pile of photocopies. So, so some, of these, some of these are photocopies of the originals. Some are the originals. But, um, yeah, we went to 79 cities last fall, and, you know, you might get a little beer spilled on one. Another one <laughs> might, uh, you know, be blowing down the street and God you have to forbid, go, go you and should, grab it. God forbid you should go to Kinko's again. Okay, what's, <laughs> what's our next one? This, this one, my friend John Tucker, he lives in my hometown, Ann Arbor, Michigan. He is talented at finding interesting receipts. So a couple years ago, he gave me this one. It just has four items on it. It says, gun, gun, ski mask, nerds. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like an interesting afternoon. <laughs> a month later, my same friend, John Tucker, he's walking down the street, and he sees this receipt. It says He picks it up, and it says, chicken ramen noodles, 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 12-pack lubricated condoms. <laughs> 12-pack of condoms sounds like an interesting night. That guy's living the high life. That's what you need. (laughs) Ten packs of chicken ramen noodles and some condoms. All right, here's here's one last find i got to share with you today, Jesse. This one came from Michigan, my home state. And, you know, times have been tough economically there. And if you you lose your job, if you get laid off, you can apply for unemployment benefits. Happened to my dad several times when I was growing up. But um, you have to to legitimately be laid off. You can't quit a job. You can't get fired and think you're going to start getting these monthly checks. So what was found here is this, this typed up kind of official letter, and it's, it's written to a guy named uh, Mr. McLennan, and it, it's from the state of Michigan. It's, so it's sort of like he must have applied for these benefits, and this is the state of Michigan's response to him. This was found on the street in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It says, Dear Mr. McLennan, your employer has not indicated that shortages was your reason for discharge. Stated you played with matches and set fire to paper in a trash can. Set fire to reports. Wrote obscene graffiti on the paperwork, calendars, and posted signs. You engaged in horseplay. Pouring ammonia on dry ice in the back room, which caused the dry ice to explode. You twirled a broom and hit a customer on the head. Signed, Mr. Hartline. So I don't think this guy's going to start getting his benefits anytime soon. Well, Davey Rothbard is the editor of Found Magazine. They're on issue number eight. In stores now, online at foundmagazine.com. And Davey's book of uh, writing is called My Heart is an Idiot. It's time. 
time for another installment of Cannonball, where we take a flying leap into the canon of popular music. We talk to experts about classic albums or albums that should be considered classics and figure out what makes them great. This week, Brad Talinsky takes us on a tour of Led Zeppelin III. Led Zeppelin's a band that you've probably heard a thousand times on classic rock radio. But Brad Talinsky says there's more to them than that. Much more. Talinsky is the editor-in-chief of Guitar World and wrote a book about Zeppelin guitarist Jimmy Page. It's called Light and Shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page. Talinsky says Zeppelin was a huge departure from the dominant musical mode of the 60s. I think they were the first true band of the 70s. While blues recreationists and folky guitar strummers sought to out-authentic each other, Zeppelin wanted to create something new. You know, on previous records, they had sort of presented themselves as a heavy blues rock sort of band. They launched an era of heavy, complex rock music. Their goal, simply, was to sound amazing. Basically, their notion was, the 60s, we're going to create the 70s. In 1970, Zeppelin released their third record, Three. At the very beginning, at the very, very beginning of the record, it's sort of like they're saying, we're going to take a really weird left turn here. We're going to do some strange stuff. It's basically about Vikings. And it would seem completely absurd to hear them sing, you know, things about the hammers of the gods and driving their ships to new lands. But every last bit of it is designed to be thrilling and sort of odd. They were Vikings. They were sort of invading the world. Get used to us. We're going to party and we're going to take your women, basically. That's the idea of this song. If the immigrant song was a reflection of their brash, hard rock persona, then Friends was the flip side to that. It was how they were going to screw around with folk music. Friends is one of those songs that's one of the greatest synthesis of hard rock mentality along with world music, just bashing those opening acoustic chords. I mean, Jimmy had been into world music long before it became fashionable. In fact, uh, he was into Celtic, Indian, and African music, and he called it his CIA connection. He said, you know, we, we did blues music, you know, we did folk music, we did world music, but I always approached everything from a rock and roll head. Uh, and that's his, that's his thing. That's what separates Zeppelin away from everybody else. Is he wasn't trying to be authentic. He was trying to be rock and roll and adding these other cool elements to it. You know, initially, at least the critical community hated it. They, they didn't get it at all because, again, they were looking at this record through a 60s point of view uh, where authenticity was important. And uh, Zeppelin was saying, no, we're going to blow all that up. We're going to present something 
totally crazy, larger than life in artificial. And, and with that, they set the stage for the 70s. It took a while for the critics to sort of catch up, but kids wearing blue jeans all across America loved it. They were sort of tossing off all the hippie notions of being authentic and uh, charting some new territory. Like, for instance, there's a, a blues song on the record, Since I've Been Loving You. It doesn't really sound like a normal blues song. You know, most blues songs are sort of basic three-chord things. And this is almost like an orchestra. It goes through six, seven different chord changes and really has no bearing on what we would all think of as authentic blues playing. And I brought that up to Jimmy. I said, weren't you afraid of getting flack from people who felt that being authentic was important? And he said, no, he, he, he really didn't care. He thought they were being like Muddy Waters when Muddy Waters was going from acoustic to electric, reinventing the thing. You know, a lot of the music of the 60s were about the lyrics and the deep ideas. Zeppelin's not really about the deep ideas. It's a sound, really. That's what's exciting about it. The thing is that they were, they were completely successful at it. I, I still think the reason that Led Zeppelin confuses people is because the lyrics sometimes are patently ridiculous, and rock critics just tend to focus on lyrical content. And I think that that's why Robert Plant is always like a little embarrassed about Led Zeppelin, because maybe that's the weakest link, you know. And then again, it could be that we're just all under the spell of uh, Jimmy Page and his black magic. <laughs> A lot of people somehow feel a little ashamed for liking Led Zeppelin because, you know, it's classic rock. It's sort of old. Everybody likes Led Zeppelin. How can it possibly be cool? But nobody ever asks that question about Miles Davis. Nobody asks that question about Muddy Waters, you know, or even the Beatles for that matter, or the Stones, you know. I think Led Zeppelin had this incredible depth. All four members were virtuosos. They were doing really experimental, weird things. And it's only on repeated listenings that you can sort of grasp it all and understand it all. And I think it's sort of captured a weird zeitgeist, too. You listen to Bronyar Stomp, and it really does sound like Mumford & Sons. You know, maybe it's time has come. So it's held up over a long, long period of time and different generations have understood it in a thousand different ways.
Brad Talinsky on Led Zeppelin's 1970 album, Three. He's the author of Light and Shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page. Talinsky's also editor-in-chief of Guitar World magazine. To think of us again And I do I'd like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's The Outshot. So there's this thing at the beginning of a sitcom called a cold open. It's the scene that grabs you before the credits even start. The best cold opens set up the episode, uh, but they're also like a little sketch in and of themselves. That's because the credits of a sitcom are what introduces the context of the show and the characters of the show. So the cold open has to work with the plot of the episode, but it also has to work without any context at all. It has to basically be a self-contained nugget of comedy perfection, which is exactly how I would describe the opening scene of News Radio Season 2, Episode 9. It's called The Cane. Bill? Something wrong with your leg? Not that I'm aware of, but thanks for asking. Oh. Well, if there's nothing wrong with your leg, then, uh, why the cane? The what? The cane. The walking stick. Oh, you mean my cane. News Radio's cast was full of amazing comedy actors. But in this scene are two of the best. Dave Foley, who plays the boss, Dave, might be the best straight man since Bob Newhart. Again, Bill, why do you have a cane? Alongside him is Phil Hartman, a man who could bluster like no one before or since. It's just like that old saying, everybody loves a cane. No, Bill, I think the old saying is, everybody loves a clown, which is what you look like with that thing. The payoff here comes when the bloviating Hartman does this cane dance that is almost Fred Astaire-like in its grace and just spectacular in its banality. But, Bill, you're not using the cane for anything. The cane should have a function. Excuse me, can I help you? Yeah, I'm looking for a Chapman Graphic Arts. Are they on this floor? Uh, oh, the Graphic Arts place. Yeah, they're on uh, me. <laughs> you, my good man, are going to get back on the elevator, go down one floor, step off the elevator, turn left, walk down the hallway, and the Graphic Arts shop is one, two, three, four, five doors down. On the right, just open the door, and you're home. <laughs> Thank you. Just glad I could be of service. And then he uses the cane to throw his breakfast at Dave Foley. Bagel Dave. (laughs) Seriously, I could watch that scene every day for the rest of my life. Go on the internet, type in news radio, the cane, and live a better life. That's my outshot for this week. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. 
Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Brian Bolt. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast with whatever software you use to download podcasts. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org or post them in our forum at forum.maximumfun.org. And hey, if you like the show, tell a friend, please. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.